0: The New Testament reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality, <coughs>
1: Good morning again, everybody. It's great to be with you. Um, If you're new here, we've been spending some time working our way through a couple of letters, ancient letters to an ancient church uh, in Corinth, and we're uh, spending the winter and the spring uh, looking at both of those letters, and what we've seen so far in six chapters is that That church was quite a mess, but we've also been trying to make some connections with the fact that the church, the universal church, uh, is often a mess, and that this church in town is also sometimes a mess, and yet, at the same time, believing that the church is a place where you find the presence and the power of God in a unique way, that He chooses to meet His people in a special way through the church and in the church. And this morning we get to talk about a topic that for some of you may be your favorite subject, sex. Uh, So it's going to be interesting. Uh, We need to talk about sex, not only because it's in our text, uh, but because it's a subject that we're deeply interested in and often one in which we're deeply confused about Lauren Winter, who is a professor at Duke, says this, Secular society tells us simultaneously that sex is no big deal and that it's the most important thing in the universe. Sex is so banal and meaningless that we can have random casual sex with our next-door neighbor, yet sex is hugely significant that we can't possibly live without it. See, we waffle between these two ideas in our culture, in our society, that one is that sex is no big deal. As Andy Warhol says, sex is the biggest nothing of all time. Peter Berkowitz, writing in The Atlantic, says, whereas in the 60s and 70s, at the dawn of the sexual revolution, radical college students referred to one of their newfound freedoms as the now quaint-sounding making love, a euphemism that emancipated sex from marriage but preserved its link to romance. And in the 80s, we then referred to having sex, which severed the biological drive from the emotional attachment. Today's students adopt a mechanical metaphor, speaking of hooking up, like railroad cars or computer docking stations. The sacredness of sex becomes diminished to what is simply a physical activity. On the other hand, at the same time, we tend to believe that sex is also everything. There's a, a movie that came out just a few years ago called The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and it had to be a comedy because that concept is so preposterous. Who is 40 years old and still a virgin? If they are, they need an intervention by their friends. That was what the movie was about. Sex is everything. Everything. And so any perceived limits upon our sexual expression, individually defined, is therefore immediately thought of as oppressive. Well, maybe our ideas about sex need an intervention. And maybe we should ask, who has the right to interpret sex? Who has the right to make an intervention into our lives, into our culture's life? Who has the right to instruct and guide us? Are we stuck just with the reigning conventional wisdom of our culture at one slice of history? Are we stuck with the ideas of whoever we're talking to or whoever we're reading at the very moment? What if there was a place that we could explore answers to our questions that transcend the individual and transcend just our communal ideas at this present time of history? Well, I want to say up front that in the Christian story, the claim is made that God alone is able to interpret sex for us. God alone is able to intervene into our lives and correct our ideas about what sex is for because why? He made us and he created the concept of sex so only he can speak with full authority, However, at the same time, we should acknowledge, shouldn't we, that the Christian church has often spoke as if we were the final authority. We are the final interpreter, not God. And tragically, as we've critiqued the secular culture for the idea that sex is everything, we've tended to excuse certain sins while shining a spotlight on certain sexual sins, making them, in effect, everything. We've spoken as if God's concern is simply preventing certain behaviors rather than inviting people into a passionate, expressive, committed, passionate sexual way of life. You see, everyone, not just one class of sexual practitioners, is broken. All of us are broken, and all of us wrestle with conflicting and sometimes confusing desires. And everyone has baggage. For some of you guys, it's something that you've done to others. For others, it's sexual sin done to you. And before correcting your sexual behavior, our sexual behavior, God wants to make us whole. He wants to give us a vision of the sexual life that is compelling and different than what we often think. Now, we saw in the Corinthian church And we see again this week that it was a very sexually broken community. Last week, there was a man that was sleeping with his father's wife, and they were bragging about it. They thought it was so cool. Look at that guy's freedom in Christ. And Paul intervenes and says, no, you've got it wrong. And this week, he's addressing the very common practice in that day of men visiting prostitutes. This was done out in the open, no big deal. Visiting male and often uh, female and often male prostitutes. And these people who had become Christians under Paul's tutelage, under his ministry in Corinth, kept right on living in the way that they had lived previously. And what do they say? They say, I have the right to do anything. This is the imaginary dialogue that Paul is setting up them, that he's heard from them, and he is saying, I hear you saying this, I have the right to do anything, where they were arguing relative to the sexual realm that I have the right to do anything, doesn't matter what I do. And we can understand how they may have misunderstood Paul because he's known as the apostle of freedom, and he taught them very definitively and very strongly that they're not bound to the Jewish law any longer. And he writes them in 2 Corinthians, where the spirit of love is, there is freedom. But Paul says, wait a minute, I'm talking about a different kind of freedom. What he's not saying is that every choice you make is equally good and for you to absolutize your own personal choices as if they are perfectly right for any time and for all people. Freedom for Paul isn't the freedom of the individual to do whatever they want. Freedom is actually being enslaved to the right things. If you visit the doctor and he or she says, well, look, your cholesterol is through the roof, you're pre-diabetic, you're overweight, I'm going to put you on a diet and exercise regimen because I want you to live to see your grandchildren. Well, the most healthy, the most life-giving thing The most liberating, in fact, choice that you could make is to enslave yourself to that regimen. While at first it feels restrictive and it feels like it's enslaving, you're choosing to enslave yourself to the one thing that will actually bring you health and bring you life. You're enslaving yourself to your deeper self, your true self, what you really, really want and what's really good. The Corinthians are saying, I have the right to do anything. But Paul, in contrast, says, but I say, not everything is beneficial for you. And then another thing that they're saying, that he responds to, that food is for the stomach and that stomach is for food, and God will destroy them both. Remember, this is Paul speaking for the Corinthians, not Paul making a statement about the body. And remember that the Corinthians are obsessed with the life of the mind, with sophos, with wisdom, with the higher realm of existence. And the body was just thought of as a sort of necessary container for the spiritual realm and for wisdom and for the realm of rationality. So what goes on in the body is, of course, then inconsequential. And so they liken their sexual appetite to the body's appetite for food. When I get hungry… I eat. When I feel sexy, I have sex. What's the big deal? This is how things work, Paul. God's going to do away with all of this anyway. The body is going away. It's my spirit that ultimately matters. So what I do with my body is inconsequential. And so in that sense, sex gets depersonalized, in fact, dehumanized. It's detached from your whole self and from who you actually are. And we have modern versions of this, too, where we say sex is just purely biological, so relax, get over it. It's an evolutionary adaptation to pass on your genes, and romance is just the way that we describe that process of making sure body parts align so that our species continues. Relax, it's just biological. Or it's just merely physical, so get over it, chill out. There's nothing of real significance taking place here. It's just a transaction. And there's a wonderful, funny, uh, one of the funniest episodes of the Seinfeld is called The Deal. And in this episode, Jerry and Elaine are sitting there together watching a TV show and something sexual happens on the TV and they begin to talk because they feel, because they hadn't been dating anyone for quite some time, they feel sexually deprived. And so they begin to think, why does that, that is sex, have to interfere with this, that is relationship. Can't we do that without it messing up this? And so they make a deal that they're going to do that without it interfering with this. And they begin to tell people, and of course, even George Costanza knows that there's no way this is going to work out. And the whole rest of the episode is about how this Actually, does or that does interfere with this because there's also the other thing, and the other thing is committed relationship. And without a committed relationship, that always messes with this. Sex is more than just physical, even Larry David knows this. Paul counters these distortions with a robust theology of the body. He says your body, in verse 13, is for the Lord, and the Lord is for your body. God raised Jesus bodily, and he will raise you bodily, not simply spiritually. So your body matters. What you do in the body now will have consequences. And he says also that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul uses body to talk about the body of the church often, but he also uses it to talk about the individual, that your individual bodies are where the Spirit resides. They are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 20, your body belongs to the Lord because why? You were bought with a price. He paid richly for your body. So glorify him with it. God cares about the body. Spirituality in the Christian sense is an embodied spirituality. So what you do with your body matters. It's not simply the container in which spirituality happens. God relates to all of you. He longs to be in relationship with all of you. And in fact, he purchases all of you. Now, I hope that you'll recognize that even if you're not yet ready to give your sex life over to the prescriptions that God is giving us, that we are in fact, I hope you'll realize and recognize that we're talking about this in a different way from what often makes it into the headlines of how Christianity is portrayed as thinking and talking about sex. On one hand, Christians are thought of as sort of prudish people, that sex is kind of this thing that's out there and we don't know what to do with it. But on the other hand, we are perceived as being obsessed, that we're always talking about other people's sex life. Listen, Paul is painting for us a beautiful picture of what human sexuality is all about that's far more compelling than some of the arguments and the debates that are happening and are attributed to Christians. And in this picture, sex isn't everything. It's not an absolute and inerrant description of who you are. There is more to you than your sex life, and God delights in all of you and even your body. But sex is far more than nothing. In fact, it's an astounding gift that when pursued in the right manner in which it was designed is virtually sacramental, that even Paul grasps for words to talk about sex, that he uses it to say that Two people become one flesh, so they become so intertwined. That's how he's describing sex. Now, as we go back to the middle of our passage, we see that sex isn't meant to be a momentary act satisfying this purely physical or biological urge, but it's designed to create a mysterious yet potent union between two persons. He says in verses 15 and 16, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? No. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two shall become one flesh. He's talking about sex as an event that is so powerful that even sex with a stranger bonds you and glues you to them in some profound way, and you cannot do it otherwise. And he's quoting Genesis' vision for marriage, that sex is something that ratifies the union that is verbal, that there's a physical act that goes along with that covenant that makes it so profound and, in fact, energizes and ratifies the marriage. There's something more to the sexual union than just skin on skin, and we know this, right? In the movie Vanilla Sky, Cameron Diaz turns to Tom Cruise and says this, Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? When you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not. The middle middle schoolers are gone. Maybe that's good, (laughs) but... High schoolers, college students, anyone dating at this moment, we often want sex to be merely a physical transaction. It's a way of recreation. It's a way to have some fun, maybe to explore our compatibility with this other person before we decide to marry them. But even Cameron Diaz, even George Costanza knows that this really isn't possible and that sex is something far more that sex is actually a self-donation, that we are giving ourselves wholly over to another person. It's not simply a means of self-gratification, although it can be, of course, gratifying. But in sexual union, you're giving your whole self to that person. And so I invite you to ask yourself, does that person deserve all of you? Are you ready to give your whole self to them? Because that's what you're doing, whether you intend to or not. And also, will they protect you? Will they protect all of you? It's designed to be a way of saying, I belong exclusively and completely to you, permanently. Are you ready to say that? Because in some way, you are in fact saying that with your body. So God gives us instructions about sex because misusing it can be so self-destructive. It can be so disintegrating. And he says in verse 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Why? Well, the next line can be a little bit confusing unless we see it as another one of these slogans that the Corinthian church has been saying that Paul is now saying back to them. Because what they were apparently saying is that every sin a person commits is outside the body. Therefore, sex has nothing to do with our heart, with our spirituality. And Paul says, no, the sexually immoral person sins against what? His own body. When you misuse sex, it does something to you. It makes you less human and disintegrates you as a person because your body is going one way and your soul and your spirit and your heart are going that way. It's disintegrating. You're communicating something with your body that's not yet true in your soul. You're expressing, I'm completely and wholly yours. And you're expressing yourself. You're exposing yourself, your nakedness to someone who is not committed to you. Who is not committed to love you in spite of what they discover? How scary is that? How terrifying is that? We know that, right? Sex is meant to be an act of self disclosure and of self donation. And what God is saying here, what Paul is saying here, is that you must not give yourself sexually to someone without giving your whole self. Why? Because you cannot. So it's not simply an arbitrary rule in the sand. He is saying, don't do it because you can't do it. It's impossible. And you must not receive someone sexually without receiving their whole self. You see, friends, this is not a a low view, a prudish view of sexuality. It's actually an incredibly high one. It's a beautiful one. And it helps us to understand why God tells us to use sex in the way that he does. Maybe you're not ready to take on Christianity's prescriptions for your sexuality, but perhaps you might consider this, that the way that or consider why God tells us to use sex in the way that He does, and that maybe that the sexual norms that we're living under are actually harming us personally. Imagine that you get on a jet, you get to have this opportunity to go to a foreign country and you get there and you're jet lagged and you turn on the TV. And for $9.99, you can order a TV show in which you can see someone making shrimp and grits. Then you sit down on the bed and you see another ad that says for $3 a minute, you can call and hear someone eating a ribeye. And you think, wouldn't that be amazing? So you decide man, I better get out and get something to eat. So you go down the street to a local establishment and the music starts and lights are flashing and dancers are dancing and suddenly someone comes out on the stage and they have a big platter and they open it up and it's a sizzling piece of bacon. What would you say about this country? Either they're starving to death or their appetites are immensely disordered. What Would you consider that there's a better way than the conventional wisdom, than our one culture, the way that we define sex and sexuality and what is good for our one time in history? Could there be wisdom outside of what we right now think in our culture and what history thinks right now? We are a very sexually expressive and a very sexually unhappy culture. So what now? In conclusion, as we said, there's no one in the room that is not sexually broken. Sin's done by us, sin's done to us. But for all of us, the abuser, the abused, the judgmental, the judged, the confused, Christianity gives more than just good advice. It gives us good news. It gives us good news of a whole different way, and it gives us good news that no one is irreparably broken. No matter how badly, friends, you've misused sex, the gospel brings the good news that there is an offer of redemption, that you were bought with a price. I paid richly for you, God says. You are redeemed from your past history. God is the God who takes broken people and makes them whole. The God who makes all things, including your body, new. The Corinthian church was filled with sexual sinners who had been redeemed. He says in verse 11, Such were some of you. They were in process, they were being redeemed. And Paul was helping them to address certain patterns of behavior and certain patterns of thinking that were actually not helping them grow into their new identity as Christians. And the church has to be a place where people can be healed, it has to be a place where people can be in process and in the process of healing from their sexual wounds. It can't be a place where we look down our nose at those people who have failed because haven't we all failed? Where we privilege our condemnation for certain types of sin while excusing our sin in other areas. It can't be a place where we discard those people who are struggling or, are, or have struggled or are struggling. Sex is important. It's a gift of God, but, it's, but you're more than your sex life or lack of one. You're more than your sexual past, your sexual struggles. You're more than your temptations and your failures. They don't define you. What does? That you were bought. That God looked upon you in the midst of your struggle, while you hadn't figured it all out, while you hadn't fixed your sexual life and your sexual practice, and he saw a person that was so immensely beautiful so full of potential, that he was so desirous of relationship that he bought you. He redeemed you. He is making you new at the price of his very own son. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that you have given us a physical act that is so expressive and so wonderful and beautiful in order to hint at what our final life with you will be like. That there are so few things that can give us a taste of what our true relationship will be like. And I pray that we would see our sexual expression in that way, that it's but a taste, it is but a hint. Father, I pray that you would move us into relationships with one another that are redemptive and self-giving, whether they are physical or not. Let us think about our brothers and sisters and those outside these doors in that way, that our lives were bought with a price, that we can give our lives to other people, that you would want us to give our lives away. We pray that we as a church would embody that and that we would do that each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name.